My name is Stan, and I am a recovering Pharisee most days. Some days, hmm, I relapse. Some days, it's three steps forward, two steps back, which is why it's so important to be leaning in, as Kyle just put it, on this sermon series that we're in right now. Hey, have you ever thought about the difference between being right and rightness? I think I just coined a word there, rightness. This is the idea of living from a position of always having to be right. Can anybody relate to that just, just a little bit? I, I, I asked Dawn the other day, hey, uh, help me remember a time when I was right, like when I knew I was right just down to the depth, the core of my being, and then I confessed that I was wrong, and she giggled. I'm not sure uh, that was a good sign. Then she went on to say, you you don't do that very often. You don't admit that you were wrong very often. Then it became a running joke. And we kept talking about it during the week, so much so that we're on a boat on Friday. All of our kids are back right now. We're hanging out on a boat uh, in Noblesville. And we had rented this pontoon boat. And I had this idea. I had romanticized it in my mind's eye. We're going to take a whole watermelon. I'm going to bring a butcher knife, which I did. And we're going to have this moment on this pontoon boat where we're going to slice. I love watermelon. We're going to slice that up. We're going to spit the seeds into the water. It's going to be awesome. And she said, well, why don't we actually just pre-slice it and put it in a Tupperware container? Then it'll be ready to go. And I said, you don't understand. This is what I want to do, and I'm, I'm right, right? End of the day. We're motoring it back to the marina, and I said, you know what, Dawn? You were right. We should have cut that up, put it in a Tupperware container, because if we had done that, I would be munching on that watermelon right now, spitting the seeds over the side. Instead, I don't want to cut into it because I don't want to make a mess now. I had forgotten all about the watermelon. And she said, oh, you're just saying that so you have a sermon illustration to share (laughs) this weekend. Hi, my name is Stan, and I am a recovering Pharisee. I am. I admit it. Then we got to talking about this, and it became, again, a conversation. She said, well, you know, I have had a little bit of that in my own life. I came walking down the stairs one morning. She had uh, pictures plastered up all over the side wall of our living room, including this one. I love this picture. This is my wife. This is still my wife. I see this look occasionally sometimes. I think it was about this era she was describing. She, this is her big brother. And uh, she'd had this conversation with mom and dad. And they had said she, she filled her bowl of cereal up with water instead of milk. And they said, you know, you really need a milk in that instead of water. And she said, no. This is the way I want to eat it. This is how you do it, right? This goes all the way back even to childhood. And as adults, oh my goodness, I'm right rightness. When, could I ask you, when does I'm rightness become hazardous to your spiritual health? I might suggest to you, it might be today. This is what I want to talk with you about today, week two of this series, Recovering Pharisees Like Me. We want this to be autobiographical, If we're willing to admit it, we're in recovery. Some of us, we know 
we're in recovery. If you grew up in the church, if you've been around church circles for any amount of time, you probably have some pharisaical tendencies. Even if you don't yet know, you might have a problem. I got some feedback last week. After week one of this series, some of you shared with me that your toes felt almost as sore as mine felt. I had some good conversations, some good processing together with some of us together last week, including a friend of mine was sharing with me that she had been here just like you last Sunday morning. She had her Bible open on her lap. She was feeling convicted, and then that evening she was at the state fair. I think to see a Christian concert, I think Toby Mac was in town. So she's sitting there waiting for the concert to start. Dude comes up, walks up, and sits down next to her and cracks open a tall boy. And she said, I was feeling it come up. I had talked about alcohol even yesterday or last Sunday morning. And I talked about judging. And I talked about how, oh, my goodness, there was a moment when I was in high school when I judged a man to hell because I saw alcohol in his fridge. And he said he was a Christian. And there was sin that happened in that moment. It had everything to do with the condition of my heart. It really had very little to do, if anything, to do with alcohol. And she said, oh, I was feeling that in that moment. I was feeling it welling up inside me, and I had to actively do the good work of pushing it back down. Again, my name is Stan, and I'm a recovering Pharisee most days. The Pharisees. They suffered from rightness, this act of just having to be right all the time. The title of today's message, if their downfall is rightness, well, the title today is Be Wrong. If they were right, maybe we should be wrong, at least through the lens of the Pharisees, the way they viewed the world. This happens, this storyline in the New Testament. You could read about this, by the way, in the book of Acts. The Pharisees go back and forth with Jesus. They're right. He's wrong. Jesus, Jesus died for the sins of the Pharisees. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? He raises from the grave, beats the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell. He ascends into heaven. He launches his disciples on this mission to tell the whole world the gospel message, the good news of Jesus' grace. And some of those Pharisees embrace the truth of Jesus' grace. You could do this study. Maybe some of you know off the top of your heads. Maybe you could push back. Maybe there are more than I found. I could only find, though, three names of people who were Pharisees who then went on to be Jesus' followers. They embraced the doctrine of grace. They gave up their right to have to always be right. Here's a name, Nicodemus. Here's another name, Joseph of Arimathea. We believe he was a Pharisee. And then there's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul embraces the grace of Jesus. Literally, Jesus knocks him on his can on the way to Damascus to persecute Christians. Why? Because Paul, Saul then, was right. Jesus knocks him on his can and says, why, why are you persecuting me? You're persecuting them. You're persecuting me. Blinds him. Saul jerks, gets a knot jerked in his tail. 
180 degrees later, he's known as the Apostle Paul, and he goes from town to town telling people the good news about Jesus. Now, in the spirit of the Pharisees, they're not named in this, but there's another name that pops up. You can read about this in the book of Acts. They're called the Judaizers. They would follow behind the Apostle Paul, literally, walk into town after he'd been there telling people who didn't know Jesus, the good news of Jesus, and they would try to mess things up behind him. I, uh, I love the honest language that's found in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Paul is describing this group of people. He says, watch out for these dogs. Name-calling, right? Those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. What's he talking about there? These Judaizers, they were the kind of dudes that were lurking right outside the baptistry with a knife. Somebody's baptized into Jesus. They would say, well, welcome to the family of God. Have you been circumcised yet? You haven't? I happen to have a knife right here. Can you imagine these Gentile believers? Welcome to the family. Now you need to adopt all of this list of 600-some rules from the Old Testament, including circumcision. Can you imagine being a 30-year-old dude? And this is what these guys are coming at you with. Let me just say this. Be wary, be oh so wary of anything that is Jesus and. Jesus wants your heart, wholly, completely, just Jesus. You don't have to accept the doctrine of Jesus and anything. Be wary of this, and when people come to you and say, well, yeah, it's enough. It's not enough to follow Jesus. Now, you need to do this thing as well, this list of rules. Let's talk about circumcision. Let's talk about all these lists of do's and don'ts. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Jesus and, and be oh so careful that you, you don't pour Jesus and on top of the things that you're telling people as well. This happens in the New Testament over and over and over again. I could point to a whole bunch of places. I want to show you a passage of Scripture. If you know your Bible, I wonder, I wonder if this might be a moment where you kind of get your mind blown just a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There's this whole conversation. Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. And he's saying, some of you are Gentiles. You're not Jewish. Some of you, you've just accepted Jesus as your Savior. Some of you, you are Jewish Christians who have now, well, you've asked Jesus to be your Savior, but you were a Jew first, Gentiles, Jews. The Judaizers have come in and said, you need to be both. Paul says, no. And let me push back, he's saying, even on some of your customs. In the Old Testament... You're not supposed to eat food that has already been sacrificed to idols. But you Gentile believers over here, you just see it as food. It's just food. This doesn't violate your conscience. It's just a little bit cheaper. This group, their conscience is violated. This group, their conscience is not violated. He has these very specific words to them. Check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. Can I just coach you a little bit? He's saying, we know that, quote, we all possess knowledge. But wait, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. 
Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Let me encourage you with some truth. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, and then he goes on, it's almost tongue-in-cheek. If you read this text, you're going to see this. Listen, the baby doesn't need the bottle. The baby's been weaned. He's ready for solid food. But he's talking to the Gentile believers. He's saying, listen, if the baby sees the bottle, the baby's going to cry. So, food sacrifice to idols, just like the baby's going to cry when he sees the bottle, go ahead and hide it behind your back. Because if he sees it, he's going to cry. But if he doesn't see it, no problem. So just be careful. When you're eating that food sacrifice to idols, just, just kind of hide it behind your back. Don't, don't let them see it. Then he goes on and says this. And I wonder how many times have we pulled this passage out of context. Check this out. Just a few verses later. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. We always take that passage, and in my opinion, when I hear it, nine times out of ten, it's describing the new Christian. They're weak. They don't yet know the strength of a life in Christ. Let's not be a stumbling block to the new Christian. Can I point something out to you? This might blow your mind. It blew my mind the first time I thought about this. The weaker brother in this context, the weaker brother was the more mature brother. The weaker brother in this context was the person who had been around faith. They had been worshiping God maybe their entire life. They were the weaker brother, not the stronger brother in this context, this time of year. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you might be the weaker brother. And it would be so wise, we talked about this last week, this time of year, we're back to school season, we're digging in at work, you're investing in your one. I hope you are. You have one life to invest in. Who is the one life you're investing in right now? Be so careful to show them Jesus not Jesus and. And if you've been around the church for a while, you might be the weaker brother in this instant. There's two profound truths I shared with you last week. Number one, people didn't like the Pharisees. Can we just own that? In Jesus' day and age, they were not well liked. Similarly, today, people don't like Pharisees. If you're the person that leans into rightness to the nth degree, you always have to be right. People don't like that. I'm going to go out on a limb. That might actually be hurting your relationship with your one. Be oh so careful. Show them Jesus, not Jesus and. The question is, are we? Is that in fact what we're doing? I shared with you last week a link, and it's, by the way, it's in the sermon app this week as well. If you want to click that link, you can read that article. If you didn't do it last week, I would urge you to do it this week. It's referencing a survey from 10 years ago. The Barna Group did this survey, basically asking, do Christians in America, do we look more like Jesus or do we look more like Pharisees? It's such a discouraging thing to read because it came back saying, well, actually, Hmm. Be, what we self-identified, answering these questions honestly, we identified we relate more to the Pharisees than we relate to Jesus. 
The findings reveal that most self-identified Christians in the U.S. are characterized by having the attitudes and actions researchers identified as pharisaical. Just over half of the nation's Christians, using the broadest definition of those who call themselves Christians, qualify for this category 51%. They tend to have attitudes and actions that are characterized by self-righteousness. Yeah, well, that's barely, that's barely past that. Well, that's a failing grade, but barely, right? Mm. Well, when you add in some of us, we have the attitudes of Jesus, but not the actions of Jesus. We have the actions of Jesus, but we have the attitudes of Pharisees. When you add up those, we're missing the mark in some big ways. I don't know if you read that article last week or you looked at that a little bit closer. Could I encourage you, uh, could I urge you this week to do some good heart work? I want to put them up on the screen right now. Would you pull out your smartphone? And I want to show you, here's self-righteous actions. Pull out your smartphone and just take a picture of that image. Go ahead and do that right now, would you? These are self-righteous actions. This is what the Pharisees would do today, and the overwhelming majority of Christians 10 years ago, I would suggest we've actually lost some ground since then. We're more like the Pharisees than Jesus. How about this one? Self-righteous attitudes. So before we even get to action, we're, we're thinking these things. Take a picture of these as well. And would you do me a favor? Not just think about that this next week, but would you pray through these? Would you do some good soul work, some, some heart digging? This is what not to do. Can we look at what we're supposed to be doing, but maybe not doing these are the attitudes and actions of Jesus. Let's put up first actions like Jesus. If we're going to do the things that Jesus would do, these were the questions on that survey. Take a picture of that one as well. You're going to take a total of four photos, and I would encourage you to wrestle through these. Actions like Jesus. How about this one? Attitudes like Jesus. Take a picture of those as well. And if you, I dare you, if you're willing to do the hard work this week, wrestle through those. Think about that. Where are you? on that spectrum. Why? Because Jesus calls us to live a different way. He doesn't want us to live like Pharisees. <laughs> he wants us to display him to a world that's desperate and dying to see him in us and through us. Can we try to balance the equation just a little bit? I've got three statements that have an equal sign in them. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down as we wrestle through these together. Here's the first one. Rightness does not equal righteousness. Oh, those words look so similar. I would, I would suggest to you they look so similar, you're going to hear me mess that up at some point while I'm talking. Rightness does not equal righteousness. They look so similar, but they're a world apart. Let me unpack, unpack that for you. In the gospel accounts, we see Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. <laughs> These interactions are revealing. Jesus, the embodiment of love and grace, he challenged the Pharisees' understanding of righteousness. They were stuck in rightness. He showed them that true righteousness was not found in rule-keeping, but rather in a relationship with God. 
Jesus used powerful parables to illustrate this point. One of these parables is the story of, get this, a Pharisee and a tax collector. It starts off like a bad joke. A Pharisee and a tax collector walk into a bar. The second one ducks. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told them this parable. Again, it sounds like a bad joke. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Two men walk. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. Interesting. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. That's a red flag right there. Flag on the play. You're praying about yourself? God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. He's got a list of who's in and who's out. Hold that in your brain. We're going to look at a list here in just a minute. Or even like this tax collector, he calls the dude out. That's a heart on display, isn't it? A heart on display. I fast twice a week. Look at me. I'm doing the right things. I give a tenth of all I get. We talked about this last week. These guys were guilty of tithing from their spice cabinet. Here's nine pieces of basil for me, one piece of basil for God. Way to go. You get a gold star. But the tax collector, let's back up real quick. The tax collector stood at a distance. And then what did he do? He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you see the humility on display? I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee, confident in his external righteousness, prayed with pride while the tax collector, aware of his sinfulness, humbly sought God's mercy. Jesus made it clear that the tax collector, with his repentant heart, went home justified before God. The message is clear. True righteousness begins with humility, repentance, and an acknowledgement of our need for God. It's not about comparing ourselves to others or impressing people with our religious deeds. God is not impressed with the gold star you're seeking to earn. It's about embracing the grace. We're going to talk about that word in a later week. That God offers and allowing that grace to transform us from the inside out. The question is, recovering Pharisees, how are you doing today in this? I can't answer that question for you. Only you, together with your Savior, can answer that question honestly. When you pursue rightness rather than righteousness, you are concerned with being correct at any cost. Correct in the eyes of man, that is. Righteousness, on the other hand, is concerned only with what God thinks. No opinion of man matters. Let me say it this way. When you pursue rightness rather than righteousness, you're concerned with being correct at any cost. That's not what he's calling you toward. Righteousness, on the other hand, is concerned only with what God thinks. Who are you trying to impress? You have an audience of one, and you really can't impress him anyway with your actions. He loves you, period, already. 
These two differ in other ways as well. Rightness is usually self-centered. It says, I've got to look good before men and women in order to feel good about myself. When you have that attitude, you'll fight to your last breath to prove that you're right and the other person is wrong. Rightness seeks self-gratification and approval from God through good works. We're going to talk about that in another week as well. In contrast, righteousness recognizes that you're accepted based on what Jesus has done through his blood and through the cross. The bottom line is righteousness seeks to please God rather than self. Let's go back and move some things around the equal sign, shall we? Let's go back to our equations. If rightness does not equal righteousness, then rightness does, in fact, equal self-righteousness. Oh, we have to be so careful here. We puff up our chests. We let pride rule our hearts. The Pharisees fell into a dangerous trap, one that we should be cautious to avoid, self-righteousness. They became so convinced of their own righteousness that they looked down (laughs) on those they deemed less religious, less holy. And they failed to recognize their own need for God's grace. And in so doing, they missed the very essence of true righteousness. If you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. I want to show you something cool. And I literally mean show you something. 19 years ago, August of 2004, some workers in the old city of Jerusalem were doing some digging. They were trying to fix a sewer line. And they dug up something that had been plaguing archaeologists for a long time. Critics of the Bible had been poking at the Bible and saying, listen, Jesus does this miracle at the pool of Siloam. We can't find it. Therefore, it must not have existed. Therefore, the Bible must be wrong. Well, 19 years ago, they're digging. Check this out. This is a group, a study tour that I led several years ago. And this part of the group is literally sitting on the steps that lead down into the pool of Siloam. Here's the sewer line that they were digging up. That's not in a great space for that group that's sitting there, is it? By the way, I show pictures like this every once in a while, and every once in a while one of you will say, hey, I want to go on one of those study tours. And I'll say, yeah, hold on, it's coming, we're working on that. Can I just say this? We actually have it planned, uh, and I'm happy to announce we're going to be taking a study tour. Dawn and I will be leading a study tour to Israel, the Holy Land, next summer, June of 2024. If you have any interest in that, if you'd like to know more about that, if you want to grow your faith on location in the Holy Land next summer, after each service next week, we'll be hanging out right down here in front of the baptistry. We'll do a short informational meeting. If you want to know more about that, you're curious to know more about that, come and join us for that. Then we would love to share with you about that opportunity. Pool of Siloam. What happened there? Jesus healed somebody. It's pretty cool, actually. There's a man who was blind, blind from birth. Jesus put some clay on his eyes, and he told him to wash in the pool of Siloam, right in there in that space. It's so cool. He obeyed Jesus by then washing in the pool. This completes the miracle, and this creates an incredible stir among the Jewish elite of Jesus' day. Why? Because Jesus did this. Gross, right? Well, not just gross. The Pharisees said, ah, 
He worked on the Sabbath. That action that he just created in the back of his throat and he hawked up a loogie and then he took some, some dirt and he mixed it together like this. It, grosser. He wiped it on the man's eyes. That's work. You're not allowed to do that according to the Old Testament. Remember Jesus and rightness. Well, this is what this is how it says it in the text. John chapter 9 verse 13. They brought the to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. He had been blind. Now he can see. Talk about majoring in the minors, right? Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eye happened to be a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. Well, he put mud on my eyes. Gross, but kind of cool, the man replied. And I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And a study of the chapter makes it plain that the entire incident was used by God to show the Pharisees how blind they were to God and what God is doing right now, today, on the earth. They failed to learn the lesson. They're not righteous, not by their own accord. Check out this in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. We're all in need of God's grace. And it's this understanding that we should build our interactions with others on. Let's go back to our equations, shall we? We've got three of them now. Rightness does not equal righteousness. Rightness does, in fact, well, it equals self-righteousness. How dare you work on the Sabbath and restore a man's sight who never had it to begin with? How dare you? Well, what are we supposed to do then? What is the right thing to do, or maybe to follow the title of the sermon, if we don't want to be like the Pharisees, what's the wrong thing to do? But really, what's the right thing to do? Well, nurture. Nurture your heart. Water. Plant seeds that grow a righteous heart. How do you do that? I'm glad you asked. Check this out. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait, what? Aren't these like the good boys, the good girls? They're great at earning gold stars. Listen, casual observers would have quickly concluded that the Pharisees were good people. They were model citizens. They appeared to be righteous to everyone. Well, Jesus is saying, I want you to be better than good. Don't settle for the gold star. Aim for more. Actually, just a few verses before that, he says, I want you to be perfect just like your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, how in the world can you achieve that standard? By being perfect in Jesus. It's not your righteousness. It never was yours to begin with. Jesus says this just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 5, this Sermon on the Mount, verse 17. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, your Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The fulfillment, he's saying, is found in me. By the way, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 describes Jesus as the righteous one. He is the one, the only one, who is righteous. I love this in Romans chapter 4, verse 22. This is the gospel message right here. This is why it was credited to him, Jesus, as righteousness. 
the words it was credited to him. You know what credit is, extended. I'm going to loan this to you. Were written not for him, Jesus alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. I love the way Martin Luther put it. This is so good. Check this out. He said in a prayer, Lord Jesus, you are, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. The great exchange, what happens at the cross of Christ. You took on you what was mine, my sin. Yet you set on me what was yours, your righteousness. You became what you were not that I might become what I was not. I love that. Pharisees, that's a good prayer to memorize. Because of Jesus' righteousness, we have the opportunity to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what do we do? How do we nurture a heart of righteousness? I'm glad you asked. Here's four real quick. Four steps you could take this week. How about this one? First of all, nurture daily surrender. Let go. Jesus, I choose to follow, not lead. Those of us who love to chase a gold star, we want to follow, he, or we want to lead. He says, don't lead. I want you to follow, follow, follow me. It begins with surrender. Number two, nurture authentic relationships. Could we just be honest with each other? Could we just share this struggle with one another? I'm not perfect, and neither are you. Why do we live with these masks, this facade, as if I'm okay, you're okay, let's just not talk about our flaws. Authentic relationship is a big deal. If you're not cutting through that with your small group, with your ABF group, you need to connect at a deeper level and just be real, be honest with one another. Authentic relationship. Nurture that. How about this? Focus on love. Instead of a list of do's and don'ts, how about love instead? Here you go. Nurture grace. Nurture forgiveness. I have so much to be grateful for because he's forgiven so much in my life. Grace. Oh, don't cheapen grace. I want to wrap this message up. I want to send you out with something to think about. Let me say it this way. The Jesus way. By the way, notice I'm not saying the Christian life. It's not a destination. It's a journey. Paul puts it this way in Philippians Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're process-oriented in this thing. You have not yet arrived, neither have I. This side of heaven, we don't arrive. We're still, we take three steps forward. We take two steps back. We pick ourselves up. We ask Jesus to dust us off and forgives us. It's the Jesus way. We're on a journey together. The Jesus way is less prescriptive. This is driving type A's crazy. What do you mean less prescriptive? Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. You go to the doctor, he says, you're not healthy. You need to lose 20 pounds. No problem. I know what to do there. I'm going to stop eating this. I'm going to start eating this. I'm going to stop sitting on the couch. I'm going to start exercising. No problem, doc. I've got this. I'll see you back in a few months. You could give me a gold star then, pat me on the head, and tell me what a good boy I am problem is the Christian life isn't like that. The Jesus way is less 
prescriptive. You can't just take two pills and call me in the morning. Well, what is it? It's descriptive. I'll know it when I see it. Oh, that feels so wishy-washy. The Pharisees would have had all kinds of trouble with that sentence that's on the screen right now. I'll know it when I see it. Can I show you two opposing passages of Scripture that are found right next to each other? Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry. The Pharisees are like, yeah, shame on them. Yeah, shame on them. Yeah, shame on them. Witchcraft, oh, shame on them. Hatred. Wait a minute. Do I have hate in my heart sometimes? They did, yes. Discord, did they struggle with that? Oh, yeah. Jealousy, yeah. Read about the Passion Week, Jesus' last week here on earth. Fits of rage, oh, yeah, there's some of those. Selfish ambition, that's how you get to be a Pharisee. Dissensions, oh, yeah, there's the Pharisees, there's the scribes, there's the Sadducees, all kinds of dissension in the ranks of the elite. Factions and envy, they struggled with that list, but look to see where it's juxtaposed between the first part and the back part of this list. Drunkenness, oh, I would never, they would say. Orgies, are you kidding me? No way, that's not what I'm a part of and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. <sighs> this is what it looks like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he goes on and contrasts that with the law, which the Pharisees were experts at. I'll know it when I see it. This week, will you put it on display? Not rightness, but righteousness. Here's why this is so important. How many of you this morning or maybe last night saw the Perseid meteor shower? Anybody see that? There's four kinds of people in the world. Those who were going to stay up to see it, didn't start until midnight, I hear, who get up to see it. I think it lasted until 5 a.m. Those who chose not to see it because I don't want to lose my beauty sleep. I get that. And then number four, uh, those people who are just now hearing that they missed it. I don't know which one you are in that category. I happened to read about this yesterday, and I saw that the skies were going to be clear, and I happened to be the second of that category. So I did two things. I set my alarm last night for half an hour before I would typically wake up on a Sunday morning. Better than that, I pre-programmed my coffee maker to go off one half hour early before I would typically program it to go off on a Sunday morning. I get up. I put on my swim trunks. That'll make sense to you here in a minute. I get the cup of coffee that's waiting for me. I go into my backyard. I climb into the hot tub. I lay back. Ah, there you go. And I see it's incredible. I'm so glad I got up early. Now, I had to work through some distractions, you understand. I'm laying there. And... My first distraction was doubt. I'm thinking, oh, man, we live in the suburbs. 
There's light pollution from Indianapolis. I don't know if I'm even, is this a waste of my time? I'm not sure I'm even, and there goes one. Are you kidding me? It flashes from northeast to southwest right over the top of me. How cool is that? I think I saw that. I'm not sure. There's some light pollution coming from inside my house, and it seems like the top story window is pulsing there a little bit. I'm like, what is, what's that light coming from? What's going on there? Oh, one of the kids left the computer on, doggone it. There's an emotional distraction. I'm listening to a podcast, noise distraction, right? I turned it off when I started seeing these lights flash. And I started counting. And then I lost count. I'm in the middle of watching this, and I'm thinking all of these, like I'm quoting the Psalms to myself. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands day after day. They just, like I'm, this is a devotional moment. And then I thought, you know what? This actually might be something I could talk about in my sermon. I'm learning something here, and you're thinking, oh, that's a devotional moment. But no, for me, that's a work distraction, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about that. And then I start praying for you, and I'm praying for your one. And I remember thinking, oh, there's something in this. There's something to tease out in this idea. And then you can't make this stuff up. My sprinkler system goes off. And I stopped and I thought, oh my goodness, in a world filled with distractions, noise distractions, work distractions, emotional distractions, in a world filled with that, when people are trying to see Jesus, don't be the sprinkler that's just in your face, (laughs) judging. I am right. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. In a world that's desperately needing to see Jesus, don't get in their way with your judging. We're going to tease this out in some weeks ahead. There are actually 12 steps to this recovering Pharisee thing. The first one, by the way, these are listed in your notes. You you overachievers could work through this this week. The first one is we admit that our single most unmitigated pleasure is to judge other people. And when we do that, we're saying, I'm right, you're wrong. Step one is admitting that we have a problem. The following steps, yeah. It's doing something about that. Would you bow your heads with me?